0: This is one of those Sundays that come along every now and then where we study the Bible and it's hard to accept at times what it's saying. It's a hard word. and So I think especially this morning, we need to go to the Lord in prayer and ask for much grace. Let's pray. Father, help us to remember that your word is truth. We didn't write it. We didn't make it up. It is what it is, and it reveals who you are. Who are we to say otherwise? Give us grace this morning to understand as you reveal who you are in ways that are typically not acceptable, not just in our culture, but sometimes in our own hearts. And help us to believe that you are who you say you are in your fullness. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to see you so that we may worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, I have done a number of funerals and memorial services. And when people show up to these, they have a variety of opinions about where the person who has deceased has ended up. Now, there are some people in our culture who do not believe in heaven and hell, but most do. And as they show up to the funeral or the memorial service, they have an opinion on whether that person is in heaven or in hell. Now, as I do these services, people show up. I would say if I've can put people in categories, they show up with three different views of the afterlife. So I'm going to kind of just run through those briefly. Some will show up and hold a view very similar to mine, uh, that God is the just and merciful judge, and those who are in heaven are there because they have trusted Christ, and God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus in their place. So God's justice is displayed in the cross, and they get the mercy through faith. But if the person is in hell, they were just an unrepentant sinner, and God's justice and wrath is being poured out upon them. As a sinner, he is a holy God, so he is fully just to send them to hell without repenting and putting their faith in Jesus. And so many come to funerals and memorial services with the view that God is a just and merciful judge. The second view that people show up with is one called, Meet Me Halfway. It's not just a Kenny Loggins song from the 80s or a Black Eyed Peas song from a few years ago, but actually a view of the afterlife. People believe that God does his part and they do their part in good works. And if they can do enough good works, then they will end up in heaven. And if they do not do enough good works, well, they're in hell. So people may actually have that view as they show up to funerals. And one of the most predominant views in our culture is the last one, it's the view that It's all good. It's all good. The person is for sure in heaven because it's all good. God just lets sin slide. (laughs) It's who he is, so it's all good. They are in heaven no matter what. Now, here's the deal. Every single funeral or memorial service that I have preached at, every single one, there is always (laughs) tension in the air. And that most people are, are nice and polite because they don't want to <laughs> they don't want to start stir things up so they don't say anything. But here's the deal when contrasting views of judgment collide, it makes people uncomfortable. And so I have a feeling that this morning some of you are going to feel really uncomfortable. And I just want to tell you that's not my intent. I want you to understand, I, I did not show up and decide, you know what, this week I just really want to preach about judgment and hell and condemnation. I did not pick this text. It picked me. What I mean by that is we go through the Bible. We go through books and whatever's next, we preach and this is what's next and let me just tell you, we can't say, you know what, I'm going to cut that part out. <laughs> I'm going to get rid of that part. I don't like talking about judgment and hell and condemnation, but i tell you what, if God has revealed himself as holy and the just judge, who are we to say, no God, that's not who you are. We just in a sense have to go with what God says about who he says he is. And if you're okay with that, even if you're not, just politely sit through this, <laughs> but we're going to go to the word and see what God has to say about himself, even if it makes us uncomfortable. So let's go back to the book of Romans. We've been in Romans for a while, and we finally have made it to chapter 3. And as you can tell, we are in the bad news portion of the gospel. But without the bad news, good news doesn't make sense. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see the good news is really good news because the bad news is really bad. We started out with Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32 that talked about the Gentiles as they are all breaking bad in their sin and under the condemnation of God. Now, the Jews thought, you know, that's true of the Gentiles, but we're the Jews, and we're breaking good and getting better. And Paul says, no, no, no. Gentiles and Jews are both culpable of their sin, accountable to God, and will face his wrath apart from Christ. All of humanity, apart from Christ, is guilty before a holy God. And now we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, where Paul is going to elaborate on the judgment of God. And he's going to do something that I I can bet. I'm not a betting man, but if I was a betting man, he's going to do something that most of you have never done and, and never even think about doing. He's going to say that God is faithful. But the way he talks about it, he's going to say, God is faithful even in his judgment. We like to sing the song, Great is thy faithfulness. And when we think about the faithfulness of God, we never think to ourselves, as some have said, great is thy faithfulness, even if you kill me. That's, you want to write that new hymn? No, we don't think that way. But the Bible is going to get at this morning that even in wrath, even in judgment, God is faithful because God is faithful in blessing and in judging. God is faithful both in blessing and in judging. Now, as we enter these verses, I want you to understand two things. One, it's really hard to understand what's going on. There's a lot of Q&A going on. Now, don't, don't forget, he's using the technique of something called a diatribe. You know what that means? He's letting the Roman church listen in on a conversation that he is having with an imaginary opponent. And Paul knows the argument that a Jewish person would say because Paul, as a Jew, used to be an unbeliever and hold to these same arguments. And so it's a lot of Q&A going back and forth where Paul is being challenged by his imaginary opponent so that Paul can teach the Roman church. And there's a lot of Q&A going on, but let's simplify it for us this morning and consider three questions. Let me put these up for you. We'll revisit these throughout, so if you can't write them all down now, that's okay. Question number one. What is the value of being in the people of God? Question number two, does the unfaithfulness of some of God's people make him unfaithful? And question number three, Is God's wrath just. So let's start with question number one. What is the value of being in the people of God? Look at chapter three, start with verse one. Then, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So, Paul uh, thinks that his imaginary opponent would say, Look, Paul, you're, you're telling us that we're all under condemnation and God is just to punish us all, Jew and Gentile. So, if that's true, what is the advantage of being a Jew? What's the point? If we're all going to face his wrath and condemnation, then what's the point of being a Jew? Is there any advantage at all? And Paul's like, oh yeah, much in every way. There are many advantages to being a Jew, and he'll talk about these in chapter 9. But here he says the, the primary advantage is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That means the Jews, God's chosen and elect people, They get the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it talks about the law, but it also talks about the Messiah and these great promises of salvation from sin. So that is a great advantage to the Jewish people. It's almost like Paul could make the same argument that he makes with the Jews to many people who have grown up in the church. Some of you may wonder, well, what's the point of the church, you know? If baptism doesn't save us, and if confirmation doesn't mean we're going to heaven... And if church membership doesn't save us, and if having the Bible doesn't save us, then what's the advantage to being part of the church? And the answer that Paul would give is the advantage is you get to grow up in an environment where you hear the gospel preached. You hear the truth of God's word. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a a student uh, from Northwestern. And he had grown up in the church. His family was uh, believers. And he went with the flow all through high school. But now that he's at Northwestern, he no longer claims to be a Christian. And you may wonder, if he is just as guilty as the pagan who never went to church, then what advantage did he have in going to church? And Paul would say, well, he got to hear the gospel. He got to hear the truth that Jesus, those who trusted him, get to repent. But get this, his access to the truth does not automatically give him a free pass to heaven. Just because he was part of a church doesn't mean he's automatically in and, and I know there, there are some people here that may have this mindset that you think that if you're in a Christian environment, it automatically means you're going to heaven. It's a very common assumption if I ask somebody, when did you become a Christian? Some people will say, I was born a Christian. I just want to tell you, that's impossible. It's impossible. No one's born a Christian. You're born again <laughs> be a Christian after the fact. But if your testimony is, I was born a Christian, let's talk. Because you're equating just being in an environment where you grew up in the Christian church with a Christian family around here in the gospel. Just because you have access to the truth doesn't automatically mean free pass to heaven. Just because you're around an environment of truth. Because it's not the access to the truth. It's the embracing of the truth that matters. I'm going to say it again. It's not the access. It's the embracing of the truth that matters. This is is the problem that the Jewish people are having, this opponent of Paul, and interacting with him. Because in their mind, I'm a Jew, going to heaven, no matter what. And Paul's challenging that. And that brings us to question two. Does the unfaithfulness, question two, does the unfaithfulness of some of God's people Make him unfaithful. Does the unfaithfulness of some of God's people make him unfaithful? Well, let's see. Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, follow the thought process here. If God promised salvation through the Messiah to the nation of Israel... But some of them, if not most of them, rejected it, is God unfaithful. You ever read the Old Testament? The Old Testament is kind of, boy, there's a lot of bummer, a lot of bummer stories in there, right? God gives all these great promises and his people rebel. They create idols and God punishes them. God sends them into exile and they continue to rebel. And and the question that, that is asking right here, well, if God's people are unfaithful, does that mean that God is unfaithful as well? That's a great question. And and here's the assumption. The assumption is because God made promises to Israel that every Jew will be saved. But that's not the case. Just because he made promises to a nation, to a people group, does not mean that every individual within those promises are saved. That's the mindset. We're all saved because we're we're in Israel. And Paul says that is not the case. Now here's the deal. See if you can listen. I expected the Apostle Paul to say, look, God is still faithful, even if you're unfaithful. And the reason why he's faithful is because he is still saving some Jews. That's the argument that I expect. I expect Paul to say, look, I'm a Jew. That proves that God is faithful because he saved me through faith in Jesus and many others like the disciples. That's the argument I expected. God is faithful because he still saves those who believe. Oh boy. That would have been so non controversial. But that's not what he does. He says this God is faithful even in judgment, he is faithful even in condemning sinners. That's harder to accept. But that's what he says. Look at verse four again. Remember, the question is: Does the unfaithfulness of some of the God's people make him unfaithful? Answers in verse four. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that ye may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. <laughs> so, God's faithfulness is seen in His judgment. God will prove to be true. He'll be proved to be faithful, righteous, though humans are corrupt liars at the core and have fallen short of the glory of God. So God's judgment of sinners is a faithful action of God. And you say, well, well, why why is it faithful? Because it shows his holiness. We can say that God's judgment upon sinners highlights God's holiness, righteousness, and glory. And we're going to even see in a bit where our unrighteousness, even in judgment, highlights His righteousness. Even our judgment brings Him glory. So I'm going to go ahead and just put it to you on street-level language. And this is hard to accept, but let me go ahead and say it. God even gets glory in sending people to hell because it highlights His holiness, righteousness, and faithfulness. Say it again. God even gets glory in sending people to hell, because it highlights His holiness, righteousness, and faithfulness. That is hard to accept, is it not? And I think one of the reasons why it's hard to accept for many, many people is because many of us have an idea that God is all-loving. It's the omnibenevolence of God. That God is all loving and all good, and so when we open the Bible, we believe God is love. Do we believe that, church? Absolutely. But many of us believe that because God is love, it just kind of kicks out or overrides all the texts that talk about His judgment, that talk about His wrath, that talk about hell. We say, God is love, and so when we come to a passage like this, we just say, God is love. So this passage does not apply. We come to all the wrath passages, God is love, so it does not apply. Who says you can do that? If I'm going to introduce you to someone, am I just going to leave out parts about you? As you're getting you get to know someone? Just leave out certain parts about you? You never want to talk? No, we're going to talk about who you are. You want to be represented. God wants to be represented. Yes, he is all-loving, but get this. That can coexist. Don't we love the word coexist? God, all-loving, can coexist with his wrath and his justice and his righteousness. omnibenevolence doesn't kick out those other things. Keep them together. If you fail to keep them together, God's love and grace and mercy will make no sense. It'll make no sense. I'm going to say it again. It's going to make no sense. If you take away God's wrath and judgment, what is the point of Christmas? It'll make no sense. Why did Jesus come? Well, he came so we can... Get presents. I don't know. It'll make no sense to you. Why do we celebrate Easter? Why, what What was that all about if there's no judgment and wrath? Well, I don't know. Easter egg hunt or something. See, Christmas, Easter, they will not make sense to you if you're getting rid of sin and judgment and wrath. It'll just make no sense. And then All the carols you sing just make no sense. A very popular pastor in Theologian has explained it in a way that I think is very powerful. And I think for those of you who have scientific minds will appreciate this. Get this. It says, but if you neglect the unpleasant doctrines of the historic faith, they will bring about counterintuitive consequences. There is an ecological balance to Scripture truth that must not be disturbed. Okay, so here's the the scientific part. I think it's kind of cool. So if you take an area and you get rid of all its predatory or undesirable animals, the balance of that environment may be so upset that the desirable plants and animals are lost through overbreeding with a limited food supply. And so the, the nasty predator that was eliminated actually kept in balance the number of other animals and plants necessary to that particular ecosystem. And so I've asked a couple of people this week to explain that to me. And they say, well, look, there were these wolves in Yellowstone, predatory animals, that they decided to get rid of. But once they got rid of them, everything started falling apart, right? Like there was overbreeding for other animals, and then the foliage was all taken apart. So it was just out of balance, and so they brought the wolves back. And the point for us, theologically, is that if you want to try to play down the bad or the harsh doctrines of the historic Christian faith, you will find, to your shock, that you have gutted all the pleasant and comfortable beliefs. So if you want to throw out hell and judgment and the holiness of God, you will damage the doctrine of grace and love and mercy. Are you with me here? That's why we we keep these things in balance. It's the gospel. We have the bad news and it highlights the good news. Do not throw out judgment and wrath and hell or it will not make any sense. Jesus came to die for sinners. He bore real wrath of God. And God still gets the glory even in judgment. And we're going to see it here, bold and in our face. So back to the text in verse 4. Now, the quote here is from a psalm. In verse 4, it says, That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. <laughs> Guess who's saying that? <laughs> it's this guy named David. Remember him, King David? What do you remember about King David? Well, you probably remember that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And that wasn't bad enough. He decided, well, you know, I'm going to get her husband killed. So I had him put in the front lines where he was killed, and he was totally busted in his sin by the, Nathan, uh, by the prophet Nathan who called him out, right? And so we have this psalm. Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance. And this is what David says in verse 4 of that psalm that Paul quotes here. He says, against you... You only. Well, just stop there. I thought thought David sinned against Bathsheba and her husband. No. He says, you know what, that may have been out here, but I sinned against you, God, and you only. And he continues have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David has a right view of God's holiness. He says, God, you are totally just if you want to come and just wipe me out for that is what I deserve. You are totally justified in in crushing me in my sin. You are true to your character and justified to judge me. Now we're going to come back to David later. So just put a pause on that story of David. We'll come back to him later. And I want to hit the main point we're hitting again, that Paul's hitting. Get this again. God is faithful both in blessing and judging. Do you remember he made that covenant with his people in the Old Testament? And he said to them, if they obeyed, they'd be blessed, but if they disobeyed, they'd be cursed. And guess what? When they were cursed... God is still faithful. He's still true to himself. He's not a liar. And he's still just. And you will see this sentiment in the Bible when God punishes his people. Sometimes his people will say, That is exactly what we deserve. Right? Who even thinks like that anymore, right? That's what we deserve, God. There was this uh, uh, from, from the book of Nehemiah they're being judged. They're being judged because of their sin. And this is what is said. This is amazing. that No one even thinks like this. It says, that Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princess, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous and all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly who even talks like that anymore god you're just you're faithful in judging our wickedness his judgment does not nullify his faithfulness but upholds it we cannot get a r- rid of god's holiness his righteousness because it highlights Our sin highlights his his righteousness. Let's see that in verse 5. Question number 3. Is God's wrath just? Is God's wrath just? Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Paul's opponent totally gets what he's saying, that their sin highlights God's Righteousness. God gets the glory at the condemnation of sinners. Uh, Let me explain it like this, all right? Recently, I have no idea how this happened, but I lost my wedding ring. Not cool. My marriage is going great, so that is no sign to a bad marriage, but I lost it. I hardly ever take it off, so I have no idea where it's at. If you find it, bring it back to me. So I had this great idea that I was going to order a new one on Amazon for $9. $9. It doesn't have to be expensive, right, guys? Yeah. Right, ladies? Yeah. All right. So, so I ordered this ring, and it didn't fit. Oh, man. Just wasted $9. <laughs> so and I'm, I know what I need to do, but I'm afraid to do what I need to do, and I need to go to a jeweler, right? Like, oh, yeah. And this is what they're going to do. I know they're going to do this. They're going to get out this black piece of felt, right, or whatever it is, this black thing, this cloth, and they're going to take this ring and that, that is, they're going to put it right in the middle of it. And, and the black piece of cloth is going to highlight the brilliance of that ring that I cannot afford. That is what we're getting at, that God's punishment of sinners It highlights his holiness and his righteousness and his faithfulness. It shows who he is. He upholds his holiness. And his opponent gets what Paul is saying. He says, if my unrighteousness highlights the righteousness of God, what shall we say? And he continues on. Verse 6. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So the gist of their crass argument goes like this. This is amazing. I don't, I don't know who thinks like this, okay? Since my sin highlights God's righteousness and judgment upon me, then guess what? Why don't we just sin more? Because the more evil we do, then the more glory God gets in judging us. It's almost like the, the Paul's opponents making fun of Paul's theology. Paul, you have a ridiculous theology because what you're saying is we should go all out in our sin so that God can get all this great glory in judging us. And Paul's going to push back. How would you push back? Like if someone said to you, God's wrath is not just because God is simply using the Jews to get his glory. What would you say to that? That God's wrath is not just because God is simply using the Jews to get glory. Like what would you say to that? This is great what Paul says. Did you notice that he said it in verse 6? He says, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? You see, the Jewish opponent here doesn't have the problem that many people have in our culture. Many people in our culture, they don't believe God judges at all. And so they have an issue with God's judgment. The Jewish people steeped in the word of God do not have a problem with God's judgment at all. They totally believe that God is going to judge the world. They totally believe that God's wrath will come upon the Gentiles and the pagans. They are steeped in that theology of judgment. They believe it and they accept it. But here's the deal. (laughs) His judgment's for other people, not for them. (laughs) You see? So that's where they mess things up. And and Paul's like, look, guys, if God's going to judge the world, why are you left out? You're part of the deal as well. If you want to throw off his Messiah, if you want to keep to the law and think you're going to be perfect, God will judge you as well. As he judges the Gentiles, so he judges the Jew. Just because you have access to the truth does not mean that you embrace it. And that's the argument he is making. The Jews have had access to the law that reveals their sin. They've had access to the Messiah, the promise, and they have rejected them, the Messiah, and they will face God's judgment. And so for us, if God is both faithful and blessing and judgment, we're kind of going to left and, and wonder well, if that's the wrong response, what's the right response? What is the right response? To all this truth of God's law and the promise of salvation in Jesus. What is the right response? So I bring you back to this guy named David. David sinned, he committed adultery, committed murder, and he said, God, if you kill me, that's what I deserve. If you totally wipe me out, that's what I deserve. But get this. David doesn't go to prayer and say, God, please kill me, doesn't do that. He doesn't appeal to God's justice. David appeals to God's mercy. Let's see it. Let me put it up for you. Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. (laughs) So he gets it. His only hope is to appeal to God's mercy, and our only hope as sinners under the judgment of God is to appeal to his mercy as well. Because the reality is, is that God will display his justice, and it will either be on Jesus on the cross, or it will be on you in condemnation in hell forever. That's really what it comes down to. He's going to display His justice and His righteousness and His holiness, either on the cross or on you. But the good news is that we can get His mercy. We can appeal to Him. Show mercy to me in the cross of Jesus. Give me, grant me forgiveness. I turn from my sin, I put my faith in Christ, and I get mercy. Do you see how the justice and the holiness highlights God's mercy? for those who repent and believe. Don't throw out the wrath. Don't throw out the justice. So no matter who you are, you can get mercy. The Bible even says that God wants you to get mercy. He desires that no one in this room right now perish. He desires that you come to repentance. He's going to be glorified either way, but his desire is for you to repent and to believe in his son, Jesus. If you've not put your faith in Christ, today is the day to turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ to receive mercy. No matter what you've done, no matter how wicked you've been, no matter how foolish you've been, no matter what sins you've done, you can receive mercy by turning to him in repentance and faith. So our brothers and sisters, don't throw out the wrath. Don't throw out the justice. Don't throw out the holiness of God. But be those who run to God for mercy and exalt in his mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the hard sayings of your word. Thank you for the the bad news in the sense of your wrath upon our sin, what highlights your good news of grace and mercy in Jesus. Lord, if there's, uh, if there's some brothers and sisters in here who feel uh, condemnation because of some patterns they've been in recently, may they see that they are loved in the cross of Christ, and they can appeal to you once again for mercy. And may they do that this morning. There's mercy, there's grace in Jesus. And Lord, if there's anyone in here who is continually pushing off, pushing off and rejecting your mercy. As it stands now, you will be glorified in your wrath. But may they appeal to your mercy. You do not desire for them to perish. May they appeal to you for mercy and grace. And I know that you will grant it in Jesus. Stir them up today to call out to you for mercy and forgiveness. In Jesus' name. Amen.